First Peter chapter two, verse one. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit, and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. If you have tasted the kindness. I have to say this morning that one of the things that I appreciate about the Reformed faith the most, and perhaps you're in this boat, is its, is its um, full-throated, wholehearted commitment to the great truth of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Uh, we say this uh, without equivocation or qualification that uh, our salvation owes 100% to God fully by grace. We say that emphatically, clearly, wholeheartedly, uh, even thankfully. And so we rejoice in that. We rejoice in the purity of the gospel, the graciousness of the gospel, the freeness of the gospel, the sovereignty of God in the gospel. But as much as we enjoy that clear, fresh, uh, statement of the gospel, sometimes we can run into, let's say, a little mental dissonance, a little cognitive dissonance, if, it, if you will, uh, because it can be sometimes tricky to figure out how do, we, uh, how do we hear commands and conditional language in view of the sovereignty of God and grace. It can be tricky to understand the role of them. What do we mean by them? You see, we have a very clear statement of the gospel. For example, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, uh, For by grace you've been saved through faith, that none of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. There's absolutely nothing to misunderstand here. Nothing. There's nothing hard to understand. It emphatically proclaims that salvation is by grace alone. For by grace you have been saved. Then it says that you have been saved through faith. And the fact of the matter is, the Word of God makes it very clear in this particular text that the very faith that is exercised in the salvation is a faith that is a gift of God by grace. And then to double down on the grace language here, verse 9 goes out of its way to make it explicit and emphatic that it's not a result of works. Salvation is by grace alone. But since salvation is by grace alone, what do we do with statements like we have here in 1 Peter 2.2? Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow with respect to salvation. The command here is forceful. It's long. It's not to be mistaken. It is a command of God to you as a believer long for the word. The conditional language is also clear as well because it ties and makes contingent our longing for the word to our growth, as it says, so by that you may grow. So on the one hand, we have these sweeping, bold, clear affirmations that salvation is entirely by grace alone. And then on the other, we have equally authoritative, affirmative, and emphatic statements in the Bible that we are commanded to do something, and our duty in doing it is, is tied to our spiritual growth in grace. So we have, a, we have a keen awareness of attention here. 
right? It's, it's clear there's a little bit of a tension. I'm not saying there's a contradiction, but we're aware that there is a tension here. And I'd like to address that this morning from our text. And I, I'm going to argue here that the point of Peter is to persuade the believer that, that longing for the word is the evidence of grace. That's what he's saying. Longing for the word is the evidence of grace and its fruit, which is this spiritual maturity, this growth, is pursued by grace. That's the reconciliation of the tension. That's the reconciliation of the tension. Longing for the word is the evidence that we've already experienced grace and and its fruit, longing for this word, produces fruit. And that very thing is also Pursued by grace. There's no contradiction. Let's take this apart in two different points here. The necessity of personal consumption of the word and the circumstance of personal consumption of the word. So we begin here with the necessity of personal consumption of the word. And and we see, first of all, there's a clear command, isn't there? The apostle Peter says here, long for the pure milk of of the word. So the command long is, is powerful. It means to deeply desire something. It means to crave something. And this word longing is uh, a word that the Apostle Paul was fond of. And the thing that we need to be aware of it, it always conveys a positive sense of moral or spiritual meaning. It, it's not like another word, which is just as strong, which would be lusting, which would refer to sinful passions. When this particular word long is used in the New Testament, It is associated with something that is positive and moral and righteous and godly and spiritual, but it's still strong. It's very intense. And it's in the imperative mood, the verb is, which means it is a commandment. All believers are being commanded to crave. And the thing there to crave here is this object. And that object here is the pure milk of the word. And I have to pause just a moment here to do some translation work because... There are translations that are quite popular today, the the English Standard Version, the NIV. They just have long for pure spiritual milk. There's no word there. In fact, the term that is, is translated, word in our text, is translated by those other versions as spiritual. So what is it? What is Peter saying here? Is Peter commanding the church to long for pure spiritual milk? Or is Peter commanding the church to long for pure spiritual word? They're not the same thing. The reality is the the term here is logikos, which which at its root is logos, means word. That which is rationable, that which is reasonable. And and I would argue it's just maybe a, a, a synonym to vary the language. After all, in context here, going back to verse 23... Peter's been using various terms for the word of God. We can see the word of God is the last word in verse 23. And then he calls it all kinds of things. Imperishable, living, enduring. So as you come into verse 2, I I don't think that um, because of context, we need to shift away from that which is rational and word-oriented here to something that's spiritual and ethereal. I think Peter is being consistent with that same theme. He just simply changing up the word for variation. So we have word as the thing that is to be longed for. And I want you to notice here this next word. He calls pure milk of the word. Milk. And that term's straightforward enough to us. We know what milk is. 
Here would be a reference to mother's milk because this idea of, of a baby longing for milk is fully consistent with that natural sort of connection. But what is meant? And sometimes uh, there, is a, there is a mistaken approach here because, you know, in Scripture, it's not uncommon for milk to be used as a language to describe what's immature. You know that? Paul used that way. The preacher used that way in Hebrews 5.12 where he contrasts milk and meat. And uh, he distinguishes between basic Christian doctrine and more advanced Christian doctrine. In fact, he uses the term and the contrast to shame uh, the people there. Because he says, you should have advanced. You see, they were in a perpetual state of spiritual infancy. He reproves them for not having advanced to strong meat. But we need not plug that in here. We need not plug that in here because the language of the text is controlled by the context here. And Peter is not telling the believer they're too long for spiritual baby food. Milk is simply a way to describe the substance of the word, the marrow of the word, the meat of the word, if you will. And he says something else about this word that we're commanded to long for. He calls it pure. He calls it pure. And this word pure is used in the ancient world to refer to grain, weed or barley or something like that, or, or corn. And basically it was applied to it to say that it was 100% weed or 100% corn or 100% barley. Nothing contaminating, nothing mixed in it. You see, the... The design of the word is to say it's that which is pure and unadulterated. It is scripture 16 ounces to the pound. Pure. And so Peter fixes our thoughts upon that which is the word of God for the nourishing and refreshing of our soul. He fixes our thoughts upon the canonical word of God. Peter is not calling you this morning to, to pause and to, to sit and to wait for still small voices from above. Uh, P- Peter is not telling the church that they're to long for new revelation or new impressions or new spiritual impulses somehow impressed upon the heart. He's not talking about new revelations or new forms. But Peter is focusing our thoughts upon, and he says the command here is this. You are to long for the inscripturated, written, canonical word of God. And then he brings in a simile to clarify or to expand upon the force of the commandment. He says, it's like. It's like. You know from your... English classes that like is a simile. It means here's a comparison that you should think about. When, when Peter says, I want you to long with the intense, the most intense form of craving you can think of for the word of God, I want you to think about it like this. He says it's like a newborn baby. It's like a newborn baby that, that longs for the pure milk of its mother. And you see, the thing about a baby, if it doesn't receive that milk, it'll die. You can't grind up a cheeseburger and give it to an infant. Their digestive tract can't, te- can't tolerate it. There's one thing that is suitable for their condition, and the thing that is suitable for their condition is the, uh, is the milk of its mother. And that's exactly what Peter is trying to say here. 
There is one form of nutrition that is for your soul, which is situation normal for the entirety of the Christian life, and that is the Word of God contained in Scripture. And so here, the Apostle is teaching us what a believer looks like. The Apostle is teaching us here what a believer desires and what they long for. And what they're long for is the Word of God. I just wonder this morning, is that you? When you hear this admonition and its basis, do you identify with it? When you hear this simile, like a newborn baby longing for the Word or the milk of its mother, is that true of you? Is it true of you this morning that you look to the Word of God as that which is the life and the heartbeat and the nutrition and the food of your soul? I've used the example again, and it's just fine for me to repeat it. I'm repeating lots of things these days, and sometimes I remember and sometimes I don't. But see, this one particular example I, I like to use from time to time is the favorite job I ever had on the farm. And the, the favorite job hands down I ever had on the farm was feeding the baby calves with a bottle. Because once those calves were born, we had to separate them from their mama so that they could go back to producing milk. And so after done milking the cows, the, the first thing that you would do is take that milk and you'd set it aside and you'd pour it in those bottles and, and the calves were set apart in a pen where they were away from their mama and the rest of the cattle. And you'd take out that bottle and those calves would literally watch you walk. And when they saw you coming out with that bottle, these little calves would start jumping around in the air and twirling and doing circles and, and kicking their heels and flapping their tails. And you'd take that bottle and start feeding that little baby calf. You've never heard something enjoy food like that in all of your life, believe me. Nature teaches us, doesn't it? It is amazing. That's what Peter's trying to say here. Do you hunger for the Word of God? When you think about Scripture, do you think about it with anticipation? When you think about Scripture, do you think about its... It's substance as something that is food for your hungry soul. Do you think about its remedies? Do you think about its power? Do you think about its promises as something to savor? See, the apostle here is trying to put that calling before us this morning. And this particular commandment would require us to be very honest with ourselves in terms of how we answer that question. The reason is this, because if you do not long for the pure milk of the word of God, it is a signal there's something terribly wrong with your spiritual condition. See, that's the problem. A lack of desire for and delight in the word of God ought to be like the red lights on your dashboard going off saying there's a problem. Do you long for the word? And here's why it's so important, people of God. Notice as Peter completes the thought here, he explains why it's critical that this longing be there. Because he says, so that by it you may grow in respect of your salvation. I want you to notice the result of this longing for the word. And that, that result is made plain by those initial words in that clause. So that... You see, Peter is saying there is a result. There is an indicator to you and your longing for the word of God. And that result here is growth. 
an organic term. If you ever planted a garden before, you know what it is. You, you, you go take a shovel out, and you turn over the dirt, you rake it, and then you push together a mound of dirt, and you punch a seed in there, and you cover it over, and you water it, and you fertilize it, and what happens? Squash comes out, right? I've never seen a garden yet that doesn't have squash because it's the easiest thing in the world to grow. You, you can't fail at growing squash. If you fail at growing squash, you've got to give up farming. <laughs> give up your garden. That's the idea. It, it, it is organic. There's this idea of growth. This is what happens when the seed of the Word of God begins to be planted in your soul. And you keep longing for it. And you keep receiving it's nourishment and refreshment. Something happens. Peter says, we grow. Now, I know our text says here, you grow with respect to salvation. I'm going to argue. I'll just say, I'm not even going to argue for it. The best Greek manuscripts, in my opinion, don't contain that latter part. In respect to your salvation. Peter simply says here, in my opinion, based upon the best manuscripts available, you will grow. But here's the thing. How do you grow? And Peter makes it emphatic in the, in the placement here in the original. He says, by it. And it refers back to word. And so here Peter is making it perfectly plain. So there's no blanks to fill in. And there's no questions to ask after you read it. The thing that Peter says here is... That when you long for the word and you act upon that desire and longing, this is what the word does. By it, you grow. You see, he connects the consumption of the word to growth in the word. Remember we said our point here is that it's necessary for personal consumption. It's, it's necessary for personal consumption. And one of those necessities is because God has tied these things together. God is tied together our consumption with the word by our growth in the word. And here's the thing. You can't short circuit this. You can't short circuit this. So that means the way you answer the question is critical. The way you answer the question is critical. And the reason is because God has built this spiritual dynamic into the spiritual life. You know, we, we could tell everybody that we were in the Word and we're longing for the Word. We, we could sit here this morning and think to ourselves how much we, we love the Word and we long for the Word. But the reality is our, our lack of honesty will be made plain. And this is what Jesus says in the parable of the sower. He says, whoever has to him more will be given. He will give in abundance. But whoever does not have... Even what he has shall be taken away. You see, this is not my word. This is the word of Jesus Christ. He says, for those who have, for those uh, in whom the word of God has been planted like a seed and it, it is causing them to grow and nourishing their soul. Jesus says there's a great encouragement for you this morning. There's a great blessing for you this morning that you will continue to have and then God will add to what you have. But you know, if you're one of those people who are casual or indifferent or dishonest and deceitful about your consumption of the word, well, Jesus said God's not going to be mocked. You could have all of the daily devotion reminders uh, 
put in your calendar and receive notifications five times a day. But if you're not doing it, it's very obvious you're not doing it. And there will be an exposure. Jesus says there will be. We don't say that to scare or to alarm. We say that to encourage. We're saying this this morning because Peter would would set great encouragement before you this morning as he, as he lays out this command. He says, long for the pure milk of the word because by that longing and by acting upon that, you will grow. So if that's not you, if you're not longing for the word this morning, you need to run straight to the throne of grace. You need to. Because as I said, a lack of longing... For and desiring the word of God is, is like a, alarm lights on your car dashboard. It says there's a significant problem in your life. I'm going to explain to you why. The first necessity of personal consumption of the word is that God has tied our longing for and consumption of the word to our spiritual growth. Now, I want you to notice the second necessity here how this command is reinforced by circumstance. So let's come back to our text. Verse 2, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that you may grow if you have tasted. Let's notice the connection of ideas here. You, you could leap in, in your text, really, from, from long to the word if in verse 3. Long for the word if you have tasted. Now, this is one of those things about Greek grammar, which is kind of interesting because the very form of the conditional sentence in the original assumes the condition is going to be met. Okay? It's not one of those if statements that's hypothetical and open-ended and we can bite our nails to figure out whether it's going to happen or not in our life. No, 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 Peter's statement here is is crafted and fashioned in such a way that he's making a statement with the assumption that this is going to happen. Or it even is happening. Long if. What's the rest of the statement now? If you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. This is a citation of Psalm 34a. Peter's modified a little bit. Taste and see if the Lord is good. We sing it a lot. What is this idea of the kindness of God? What's his grace? The word kindness here literally means love or graciousness. And so what is this tasting? We know it's the grace of God. Peter says, have you tasted it? Have you tasted it? Essentially, it means to experience something. Have you experienced grace? Because Peter is saying the people who have experienced grace will have this relentless, longing, craving, desire for the Word of God. There's no mistake about it. So what is he speaking of? The answer is located in the context here. I want you to notice the very first word of of verse 1. It's therefore, isn't it? I'm not going to bother you with the Martin Lloyd-Jones rule. You already know it. But look back in the context. What, what is immediately proceeding in the context? Well, what immediately precedes the context here uh, begins at verse 23. 
For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, through the living and the enduring word of God. Notice what is in the context here. What is in the context here is the statement of regeneration. They have been born again. That's what Peter emphatically says of them. You have been born again. We know this is about regeneration. This is the very same word that Jesus uses in his nighttime conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus said, Sought him out in the middle of the night, came to his house incognito, as it were, a great teacher in Israel. And he comes there to sit down with Jesus, one rabbi to the other, if you will. And begins some boring, mundane conversation piece. And Jesus just cuts him off. And he looks straight in Nicodemus' eye and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus said, Nicodemus, I don't have time to exchange pleasantries here. One teacher, Rabbi, to the next. Nicodemus, you have a problem. Though you're this great and exalted teacher in Israel, you have a heart problem. You need to be born again. Your circumcision doesn't matter. Your Judaism doesn't matter. Your your, uh, impeccable training in the law doesn't matter. Nicodemus, what you need if you would see the kingdom of God is to be reborn, to be regenerated. The thing that stands out about regeneration is that it's a sovereign act of God. The very thing that Jesus says Nicodemus must experience is the very thing Nicodemus can't do for himself. And we know that's because of what Jesus said in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. You see, what Jesus emphatically asserts here is not just the necessity of being born again, not just the necessity of regeneration and new heart, but what Jesus makes it very clear is it's not in our hands. It's a sovereign work of God, just as sovereign as the wind blowing where it will. We've already read this truth back in chapter 1. John 1.13 says we're born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The Word of God says it doesn't matter who your family is. Not of blood. It doesn't say the flesh. That is whether you're a Hebrew circumcised of the tribe of Benjamin on the eighth day. Of the will of man, that's your determination. It's emphatic in the original, but of God. You see, regeneration is the sovereign implantation of the new heart and the new nature in the sinner to make them new. It's fully a sovereign work of God. Jesus says himself in John 6, 44, No one can come unto me unless the Father who sent me draws him. People of God, this is everything that is packed into this statement here. In 1 Peter 2, 3, if you have tasted, because contextually the tasting of the Lord is this experience of grace where the Apostle Peter says, you have been born again. You've been regenerated. You see, Peter is saying, if that indeed has happened to you, the situation normal is longing for the word. You see, we're resolving the tension I spoke of at the start. If you're saved 100% by grace, 
What do we do with these commands, which are so full of authority, that feel so non-negotiable? What do we do with this condition if? And the answer is bound up with grace. Longing for the word is the evidence of the experience of grace. And pursuing growth in the word comes by grace. You see, this is not our part. God's done his, he saved us and all that. And now we do ours. No, the argument that Peter is making is that this is necessary because it flows straight out of the experience of God's grace. And so if you don't long for the word this morning, you don't have a desire problem. You don't have a longing problem. You just might have a regeneration problem. You see, that's what Peter is saying here. He stated the case so forcefully because he is saying that this is what people do. This is what people do who've been born again by the word of God. This is what people do who have tasted the kindness of the Lord. See, I remember I said that uh, if you're not longing for the word, you're not craving the word, it's a real problem. You shouldn't be hiding it. It might be because of sin that this craving has uh, lost its strength. I, I, that's true. It could be because of your selfishness. It be, could be because you are so wrapped up, or in fact, the world has you so wrapped up in its clutches that you've become spiritually insensitive. Maybe you are so involved in your entertainment and pleasure and pursuing your own personal satisfaction that, that well, the, the word of God is being choked out in you and these spiritual impulses uh, have died to uh, almost a lifeless piece of coal. If that's the case, you need to run to Christ. You need to ask for forgiveness. You need to realize there's a real spiritual problem. But let's just assume that isn't there. Let's assume we're all longing for the word or there's some level for it. I want to reinforce for us this morning why we ought to long for it. Hopefully this encourages us to get back to the word. And the thing that I would have us... uh, set our thoughts upon here and hopefully provokes us to a deeper sense of longing and, and fortitude and this commitment to longing is to simply look at the qualities of the word. And one of the great things about our text is Peter not only commands us to long for the word, but Peter does such a great job here in context with, with stamping upon its very face the nature and the qualities of the word which would cause us to, to thirst and to starve for it. It begins back in verse 23 when he speaks of the fact that we've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. And if we didn't have a dictionary near to hand, it's okay because you can figure out what he means by imperishable by the very quote that he brings up to illustrate it. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 6. It says, all flesh is like grass. Its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers. The flower falls. Who doesn't know about that right now? 
I had to drive from here over to Las Vegas for the ordination service of Reverend Edgar Ibarra over there at the Las Vegas Reformed Presbyterian Church, which you know so much about, we've been praying for. And the one thing that I was struck about is it's kind of a, a phony world here in Orange County. Everything is green. It's even cool over here. By the time I got to Rancho Cucamonga, I was so hot, I couldn't believe how scorching hot it was. And then I drove up over the valley to Victorville in the desert. There's no life there. It's, it's dry. It's a desert. The grass fades. The flower, I don't even know if it can grow there. You see, Peter fixes our attention upon an illustration that we're quite able to understand. And he says, I want you to know, people of God, that's not the scriptures. Because he says in the next verse, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Here's the quality of the word of God that is like nothing else in our experience. It doesn't wither. It doesn't corrupt. It doesn't degrade. It doesn't die. It is the living word, as Peter says. Not a dead letter. Can you ever think about that? We just finished a whole series in the book of Nehemiah. 2,500 years old. Oh, how the word was so powerful from Nehemiah. How contemporary from Nehemiah. How rich for us today from Nehemiah. It's not a dead letter. I'm always interested when I look up at these new archaeological findings, which either confirm or don't confirm the word of God, you know? Some stone they dug up. Somebody was mowing his yard and he stubbed his toe and he found something that was 3,000 years old, you know? And my, how interesting it is. Those are dead. They're nothing. You could pick up a little piece of manuscript buried in the sand for 2,000 years. That's the word of God. It has the power to convert your soul. It's alive. It's enduring. The other one here that I, I, I put our focus upon is, is the qualifier here, pure. The pure milk of the word. And we've already said it, it applies to grains and to barley and to corn. And the point of it was to say that the merchant who was selling them hadn't mixed it with dust and sand. It was pure. How about Psalm 19.8? The commandment of the Lord is pure. Enlightening the eyes. You see, this is the value of the pure word of God. The value of the pure word of God is that when you read it, it's shining a spotlight right through your eyes, into your soul. One of the most profound statements I ever heard the entire time I was in cemetery was made by one of the brightest men I've ever had as a professor and he said it's this the difference between reading scripture and everything else is that when you read the Bible it reads you back it's pure it enlightens 
their eyes. You see, the very character of the word is a reason and a motive for the longing of the word of God, incorruptible, living, and pure. Don't put substitutes in the place of the word. I know it's fad spirituality. I know it's fad Christianity to to wait on a word from the Lord and to to tell people that God spoke to you. Why does he always do when people are in the showers? Oddest thing. People will say things like that. Or they're driving down the road. I'd rather have you focused on the freeway. But, But everybody's wanting this new thing from God, this new word, this new revelation. So so they can go share with somebody. You know, God just laid this like God just told me this. Well, that's garbage. God speaks in his word. Why are we so unsatisfied with this? Why is it that we want so many different words? This is enough. It's, it's, it's living. It's enduring. It's imperishable. It's pure. It's inspired. There's no error in it. You see, the necessity of the personal consumption of the word is bound up with its nature. And it's because of the very nature of the word that our nature has been changed from a sinful one to a regenerate one. Because that's happened, this is situation normal for the believer. They are to long for the word. Let me add one more thing here we'll be done. We had to look at the necessity of personal consumption. I want you to notice the circumstance now of personal consumption. The circumstance of personal consumption. This is really important for us to grasp. And that circumstance is spelled out for us in verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. The connection here is, is backward and forward. We've seen the backward connection with the word therefore and how it looks back to what immediately proceeds in this declaration about Uh, being born again uh, by the living word of God, the forward connection is is quite simply, if you were to take that that word uh, putting aside, like it was in a word document, and you ran your cursor over to highlight it, and you moved it forward, you could put it uh, right next to the word long. See, the grammar of the text tells us that, that putting aside is to be read right in connection with long. It's called a circumstantial participle, if you will. See, the circumstance of longing for the word is a particular circumstance, okay? And this putting away here is a very powerful and vigorous and strenuous word. We find it repeatedly in Paul's letters, particularly in the admonition sections that tend to be in the latter part of the letter where Paul will say, uh, put off this and we'll have a whole laundry list of vices. Well, it's the same vigorous term that's used here. And by the way, the very form, the very form of this verb, it's a middle form, which means that you involve yourself in it. So it literally would read putting off yourself or yourself putting off. That's the key to understanding this. So the context For the longing for the word of God is you yourself doing something, putting away. The thing that you're to put away is sin. Before we tackle this list, I want to make sure that we understand a couple of things by way of, of introduction. 
Peter isn't listing every possible sin that could be put away. If he was, we wouldn't be done reading for a long time. John Calvin's point here is simply this. Think of this as the flesh. And he says, from the flesh flows an immense mouth of, an immense mass of filth. So that's what you need to think of. Why has Peter chosen these words? Well, I would argue because of the context. Would you look again with me in your Bible to the back connection of this? Look at verse 22. Peter says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Here's the command now. Fervently love one another from the heart. Okay? Now, you see what the word is next? For. For. You've been born again. You see, the basis of the commandment to fervently love one another from the heart is because they've been born again. They are to act in conformity to their new nature. So the reason why Peter chooses these words is because what Peter would have Christians do is love one another. What Peter is speaking of here is brotherly love. Peter is speaking about the duty you owe to everyone here front side and behind to everyone in the church Peter is saying this is what you owe fervent love and so these sins that are listed here that must be put off here are the kind of sins which impede and destroy the work of love in the church okay so I want you to know quickly here there's three there's four things that that Peter says must be put off the first thing that must be put away and the circumstance of longing for the word is malice. And it's an ugly word in Greek, kakia. It don't sound too elegant, does it? It doesn't roll off the tongue. It's a harsh guttural sound. It's malice. It's, it's hostility. It's ill will. You see, malice is full of contempt for others. Malice is ridicule to others. Malice has no brotherly concern in it at all. Malice is selfish. You are a community of one. It's an oxymoron, yes. Malice, hostility towards others has to be put away or you won't profit from the word. The second is destructive motives. All deceit and hypocrisy. Deceit is full of trickery and cunning and slyness. And deceit looks at people as tools to be used for self. That's deception. The reason why we deceive is because we are seeking to manipulate others. Hypocrisy is the concealment of truth, isn't it? Hypocrisy is the concealment of truth. To be a hypocrite is to put on a mask and conceal yourself. But you see, the problem with being a hypocrite in community is it says, you're not worth hearing the truth. You cannot build community with hypocrites because everybody is willfully deceiving each other. A community that is characterized by hypocrisy and deceit is a community that will unravel at the seams because it's unselfish and not genuine. You can only promote community when there's truth and honesty and transparency. Destructive attitudes, envy, you might as well just put jealousy in there. It's an attitude of sadness about somebody else's 
giftedness or ability or blessing. Think of that. To be pained or to be bothered by somebody else's good. That is envy. And just so that we gauge what a very dangerous spiritual sin this is, we learn in um, Mark uh, 15.10 that the high priest handed Jesus over because of envy, because of jealousy. You see, envy cannot coexist with brotherly love because envy says the only good news for me is bad news for you. Can you imagine? Could you build a church that way? Could you build community and church that way where the only way you could ever be happy living in the community of people around us is if you saw everybody having a bad time and you yourself were just having enjoyment? You see, good news for me means bad news for you. Finally, what must be put away? Slander. It's uh, defaming speech. He's not talking about gutter talk here, so don't waste your time thinking about that. He's not talking about swear words. He's talking about words which are designed to wound somebody else's reputation. False reports, gossip, even the truth whispered in the ear, which is aimed at naming the character of somebody else. You see, um, slander is the absence of speaking good. It concentrates on what's negative. It seeks to destroy. It seeks to tear down. It seeks to harm. So I want you to understand this morning, people of God, that this is how we long for the word. We long for the word in the circumstance of putting off all of these sins which destroy community in the church. Destructive anger, destructive attitudes, destructive words, destructive speech, destructive behavior. I think it's utterly remarkable this morning as I, as I think about this text is that and it's humbling too. Because what Peter is saying is that God ties my spiritual growth and grace to my concern for you. I'll say that again. God ties my growth to my concern for you. Think, just think of how humbling this is. It means no one here can, can run out ahead of somebody else and, and think they're going to get better spiritually. P- Peter is saying you, you could grow your intellect to the size that your head looks like a hot air balloon. But don't equate that with growth and grace. Don't equate that with spiritual maturity. Because what God has done has so tied us to the body of Jesus Christ and to one another. The same people have experienced grace like us that we simply cannot grow without being concerned to love one another. What a humbling thing that Peter proclaims here. The Reformed Church fosters and cultivates learning and that's not a bad thing. We should all seek to grow in our understanding. We must always remember that is inseparably connected 
with how we treat one another. Growth in the word is inseparably connected to us killing the sin in our life, which hinders love of our neighbor. What about you this morning? How are you treating each other here? How are you treating each other here? How are we treating each other? This text is a powerful warning to us to not crave growth and knowledge without at the same time seeking to put into practice their life. So it comes as a warning to us to be careful, to be sober-minded about this. That if we would seek to be who God has made us to be, which is regenerate people serving him, that we're going to have to stand firmly within that grace and lay hold all of its powers and seek to kill our sin. Because if we don't, God's word will not flourish in us or among us. May God give us grace to long for the pure milk of his word. Father, we thank